Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh, he broke his head. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. Well, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast with New York Sports Talk Long Suffering Fam. Your host, Mike Phillips. Got a fun second show of the week for you. I mean, we were on earlier this week. We broke down the end of the Yankee season with Dan Federico. Got a special treat for you guys. You got an interview with author Jeff Perlman, who has a new book out, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I gave you a teaser version of the conversation with uh, Jeff. We're going to talk a little bit about the Bo Jackson book, a full version later on this year in the holiday special. So we'll give you a about 20-minute sample here of the Jeff Perlman convo. We'll get to more of this in a bit. We're also going to do our week eight NFL picks on the podcast. We're going to be joining the guys from Sorry Sports, Tom Vecchino, Sean Rowe. Talk about the New York teams as well. So week eight picks come up in just a bit. Make sure you lock in the other two minute drill here because the World Series is coming tonight. Phillies Astros game one in Houston. I'll give you my thoughts on that series as well. If you like it here on the Justin the Suffering podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering and Favorite Podcast platforms. Final episodes there, including our chat with Dan Federico earlier in the week. So, again, subscribe. You want to check, get all that stuff. Also, leave your feedback and starring as well. They help make the podcast even better going forward. It means a lot to me to get the feedback from you guys. If you can do that, that would be awesome. Check the YouTube page. Mike Fell is on YouTube. Video version of the conversations with Jeff Perlman and the Sorry Sports Guys we have on YouTube. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, let's get into our opening tip. We're going to talk about some of the tone deafness coming out of Hal Steinbrenner and the Yankees. That is coming up right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. Opening tip time here. We on the Yankee season is over. There's been a lot of anger from the fans. They have this has gone backwards in six years since the 2017 loss to the Astros. And we have seen them, you know, losing six to the Astros, losing the ALC DS a couple of times, lose the wild card game last year, get swept by the Astros, look non-competitive in that game here. And you're here hoping for big chains here. Remember, Brian Cassin's contract is up. Yankees still have to negotiate a new deal with him. Aaron Boone could be on the hot seat. And we're getting some crazy room in the clubhouse. Don't be surprised. Everything is, appears to be staying the same. Hal Steinbrenner spoke to the media on Wednesday as he left the Yankee player development complex. And this is what he said. As far as Boone is concerned, we just signed him. And for all the same reasons I listed a year ago, I believe he's a very good manager. I don't see a change there. In other words... He is not going anywhere. So why did the Yankees lose then if it is not the manager? And it's probably not the general manager either because it sounds like they're going to talk about a contract and that, you know, like if Brian wants to come back, he'll be back. Here's more of what Hal Steinbrenner said. We didn't get the job done. It's time to get it done. Anytime we don't win a championship, it's a disappointing year. We had a lot of good ups. We had some downs. We had some injuries like everybody else. But you've just got to give it to the Astros. They're a very good team top to bottom. 
We just didn't bring our A game. That's not what the Yankee fan wants to hear right now. They want to hear, you know what, tip your hat to the Astros. We didn't play our best game. This team is flawed. It is very flawed. Aaron Judge's a free agent, and Anthony Rizzo made a good point here. If Aaron Judge walks, is this a last place team? Because the cupboard is not filled with a ton of stuff here. You have aging players on contract on bad contracts. You have one legitimate star at that point, John Carl Stanton, on the in the lineup. You have Garrett Cole's top of the rotation with questions beyond that. There are bullpen questions here. There's a lot of work to be done, and you have to wonder, is this group the right group? Hal says yes, and we are getting, you know, a lot of chaos going out of the Yankees right now. We have reports coming out from Andy Martino that the players were shocked at the reception they were getting from the fans and how Aaron Judge getting booed for striking out in the, in the playoffs after his MVP year. Josh Donaldson making a lightning rod, and they were shocked by that. Andy Martino mentioned speculating that some players might not want to come here. Because of all the booing and the pressure. You know, pressure makes diamonds. If you don't want to play in New York, you're probably better off not doing it. And granted, players here, when they win, can become legends. Derek Jeter's not the same guy if he's playing Kansas City in terms of legendary status as, he's, as he is for being great at the Yankees. Aaron Judge is not the same guy if he goes to the Giants that he would be if he's a career Yankee. That's stuff to keep in mind here. We have criticism of boom from the locker room. We also had... Legends have come out and spoke against this. I mean, Mariano Rivera himself came out and said the other day that, you know, like, if I was in charge, Aaron Boo wouldn't be back. And that says something, because Mariano is not very eager to criticize the Yankees. When he's coming out here and saying the manager has to go, that's a problem. But nothing's going to change here. Hal Steinbrenner does not seem to care about the angry vitriol from the Yankee fans on Twitter. Hal Steinbrenner has told you this. He told Ian O'Connor this the other day in the post. And he said this is a story O'Connor had back from spring training. His job is to satisfy the team's financial situation. It's to make sure that they're up to date on their payments and with their loans and their bonds and satisfying the bankers. Winning is extra. He says he wants to win. The priority of the financial are sound, which means that Yankee fans have to realize this. This is not 2002, 2003, when if there was a big guy on the market who had fit a need you had, you went and got him. You're not going to go out this offseason. I mean, Aaron Judge is an exception because he's your free agent. You're probably going to look to retain him. You're expecting Jacob DeGrom? Not happening. You're expecting Edwin Diaz? Not happening. You're expecting, you know, Trey Turner? Not happening. You are going to re-sign Aaron Judge. You're going to you probably look to bring back Andrew Benintendi. Let's make some moves to the bullpen. Maybe you make a trade. This is not going to be where I go spend like like hundreds of millions of dollars here. This is not the Yankee way anymore. The Yankee way is to build a contender. They get to the playoffs. And if they hope to get hot and win the World Series. Which, you know what? That that does for you is it sells a lot of tickets to the regular season. Sells a lot of merchandise. Sells a lot of chicken buckets. Sells more tickets to the higher price in the postseason. If you win, fantastic. If you don't. You satisfy the bankers. That's the winning formula right now for House Steinbrenner. And the thing is, Yankee fans have to realize this. It is not changing anytime soon. Hal is not his father. Hal would not tolerate, you know, continue. George would not continue. Continued, you know, lack of progress here. Aaron Boone's had six years in this job, and he's taken this team backwards. Brian Cash has been there for almost 30 as the GM at this point. He's been in the front office a lot longer. 
at some point you would think, let's get a fresh perspective in here. Let's try and do things differently because voices can go stale. And yes, I know Brian Cash will get a job in five seconds. He was no longer with the Yankees, but give someone else a crack. There are plenty of talented individuals in baseball who have an understanding of analytics and can do a lot with Hal's, Hal's money that Brian has Cash has really wasted the last couple of years. In the end, though, you got to sort of accept this, is that, you know what, this is not going to be, you know, we get angry, we go sign everybody, a top three free agents to improve things here. This is winning on a budget. It's a big budget, but it's still a budget. It is not like like uh, prices be damn, we're going to get what we need. Something Yankees are not going to get used to. That's why they're not in the World Series again. They're not been to the World Series since 2009. We'll see if that changes next year, but... Let's start our conversation with Jeff Perlman right after one of Bo Jackson's most memorable highlights, the 91-yard touchdown run on Monday Night Football against the Seattle Seahawks, courtesy of Al Michaels back in the day. Third down and six at the nine. And Bo Jackson to the 20 and out in front and only one man to beat and easily can't run him down. He had the angle, but there goes Bo, and nobody catches Bo. Touchdown. <laughs> he may not stop yep. the Tacoma. <laughs> He's gone. Portland. <laughs> he just went by Spokane. And there go the Raiders into fine. <laughs> what a scene. <laughs> Come on back, guys. Oh, he was flying. Third and sixth. You'll see Dean Moraldi, the center, pull out of there. Steve Wright, the right tackle, but I mean, it's over right there. Kenny easily has the angle. And it's like little kids chasing a grown man. It's the longest run in Raider history. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Got a special treat for you guys today. I have had a chance to read a new book that's come out, coming out here, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I'm speaking to the author of the book today. Joining me is Jeff Perlman. He's written a lot of sports, but he's written for Sports Illustrated. Jeff, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, and it's good to speak to someone, uh, a guy from the home, the the old neck of the woods. I'm a, I'm a mail pack guy. I worked, I sold cookies at the Jefferson Valley Mall. I took surveys at the Jefferson Valley Mall. Um, I had my careers at the JV Mall. Yeah. I remember when the JV Mall had a movie theater. That's so long ago. Does it not have one anymore? Long gone. They it's got, a dead mall now, right? They actually have revived it pretty, like, pretty well. I mean, there's now an escape room in there. They have a new restaurant in there. Like, they've done a job fixing it up. Oh, that's good to hear. Because that was my, if you were growing up in Mayo Pack in the 1980s, you, as you know, as we've discussed, not much to do in Mayo Pack in the 1980s. <laughs> the JV Mall, you'd go, you'd wander around, you'd bring 10 bucks. They had a Burger King, a pizza joint, and you just roam the mall. So uh, anyway, there you go. Yeah, they have a Cinnabon now. It tells you they're doing well. Did not have a Cinnabon back in the day. <laughs> did not. But they did have a Burger King and a Friendly's ice cream place, so. Yeah, a lot, like, I think a, a lot of fun with the J.V. Mall memories. Let's talk about this book here, and the book is entitled, as I mentioned earlier here, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Time and Myth of Bo Jackson here. And I want to start out here with a question, because obviously you've written a lot of books. You've written about the 86 Mets, several Laker dynasties, Brett Favre. What made you say, I want to do a book on Bo Jackson? Well, during those days in Mayo Pack when I was growing up, like, he was on my wall. Bo Jackson was on my wall. Ricky Henderson was on my wall. Don Mattingly was on my wall. Dwight Gooden was on my wall. And I'm very nostalgic. I'm very, very nostalgic. And when I was thinking about the next book, my last book was about the Shaq Kobe era Lakers. I really love writing about and diving into athletes who I grew up watching and appreciating. And um, 
even when I went to University of Delaware, I had two Bo Jackson posters hanging up. Like he was among my handful of favorite athletes. And I just think you read the book, like there's a real mystique to what could he have been? How many of these things people talk about actually happened and where has he gone? And I just think those are good recipes for a book when you talk about an iconic figure like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go to the book and you, you just look at all these different feats, like Bo Jackson, when he's a kid, like they, we had like minor league teammates telling how like he ran up walls, how to throw balls, but the running track, like over the center field fence and like a lot of stuff like, is it real? Is it not sort as the myth of Bo? And I'm kind of comfortable with both. You know, like I verify hard. I interviewed 720 people. I reported this thing super duper hard. But when you're talking about like, there's a, I haven't talked about this yet uh, while promoting the book, but there was a game when he was playing in Memphis with the chicks in the minor leagues in 86. And he's running toward a foul line. I think it's Charlotte at the ballpark in Charlotte. And they have a chain separating the foul from fair territory, like a literal physical chain. And it's five feet high. And I had multiple teammates tell me Bo ran, caught the ball on a fly, like planted his feet, leapt over the five foot thing, turned around, flat foot, jumped over it again. Now, there's no video of that. Nobody was videotaping the Charlotte Memphis game back in 86. But I have witnesses and sometimes you go with them. And and even if stories like, there's a lot of tall tales with Bo Jackson. There's just are. There are a lot of, that ball went 500 feet. No, it went 600 feet. You sort of just, there's a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge for uh, some of these things. Absolutely here. You mentioned you interviewed 720 people. One of them was not Bo Jackson himself. I know you talked to Bo beforehand and he basically gave you his blessing to do the book, but he did not interview to be interviewed for it. So here, so I understand you had a very creative way to get Bo Jackson's voice into the book. I wouldn't say he gave me his blessing. I just want to say to be clear, I don't want to misrepresent. He said, I'm fine with you doing it, okay. which isn't the same as saying good luck with it. I hope it was <laughs> great. He didn't stand in my way. Um, I got really lucky. So he went to Auburn University in Alabama. And someone told me that when he was, uh, he wrote an autobiography in 1990, Bo, Bo Knows Bo, with a legendary journalist named Dick Shap. And Dick Shap has since passed. A lot of people might know the name because his son Jeremy is on ESPN. And when Dick Shap died, before he died, excuse me, he donated all his notes to the Auburn Library. And it wasn't just notes, it was the audio recordings of all his interviews he did with Bo. And I was able to pay Auburn's library, whatever, a nominal fee, and they sent me everything. And a lot of the interviews were never used before. A lot of the material was never used before. It didn't appear in his autobiography. And there's just mounds and mounds and mounds of, of information, of quotes, of fresh material. So I've told people it almost felt like having a conversation with 28-year-old Bo Jackson. It was invaluable. Yeah, like how much material was there? Like how many like tapes did uh, Dick Schaap donate to that oh. library? So they sent it to me on a, on a file. So it wasn't actually the audio tapes anymore. It was yeah. all that converted. So I don't know how many tapes, but it was... Uh, well, I'd say maybe 20 yeah. thick interview, you know, because yep. yeah, what he did, Dick Schaap at the time they would do is maybe Dick would meet him in Kansas City before a game. They'd sit down and talk. He'd go to his house, a different session. They'd sit down and talk. They'd go out to eat at a diner. They'd sit down and talk. So it was all these different sporadic interviews with Bo Jackson. And it was him talking about stuff because he was very guarded with the media. It was stuff he usually wouldn't talk about. And some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff never made the book for one reason or another, but it, it made this book. Yeah, it does make some sense here. And obviously one of my favorite parts in the book was going through all of like the Bo Jackson myths and like all of his like feats of athleticism. Like what was your favorite one you uncovered you hadn't known about before you did the book? Are there two? Can I go two? Sure. 
he played a high school game against Fairfield High in Alabama. And all right, everyone kept telling me, man, he hit a ball and it went so high that by the time it came down, he was at third base. Yeah. I heard that story. I was like, uh, can I put, can I curse on your, uh, on your yeah, podcast? sure. I was like, that's bullshit. Right? That's bullshit. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. All right. I tracked down Eddie Scott, the left fielder for Fairfield High. He's like, yep. He's like, I was playing outfield. The ball was so high. I could not see the ball. It came down. It bounced on the grass. I look up. Bo is rounding third. Ridiculous. Utterly yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. The other one is it's a first night game in the University of Georgia's baseball history. This is Bo's junior year. And um, they've been trying to get lights for years. For Steve Weber, the coach, finally gets the lights. And um, Bo Jackson is booed mercilessly in the outfield for Auburn. And his first at bat, he grounds out. And the fans just boo him. They let him have it. First night, first night game. Have you seen the movie The Natural? I have. So you know the famous scene, it hits the lights and it explodes. Yes. All right. This is 29 days before The Natural comes <laughs> out. Bo Jackson, second at bat, he hits a home run that hits the lights. Hits the lights. He runs back out to, out to the outfield. I think he was playing right field. And the fans stand up and start bowing at him. These are Georgia fans <laughs> bowing. His next two at-bats, he hits two more home runs. And his last at-bat, he doubles, and everyone boos. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And there's no video of that game, but I interviewed so many people, Georgia players, Auburn players, spectators, media. I feel like I got a real good feel for it. Yeah, I remember that game. I stuck out me when I was reading the book here. Also, I want to go through some of the more specific stuff of Bo's life here. Start with, like, Bo as a kid, because obviously I think one of the big things I noticed when I was going through that section of the book was, like, how much the impact of him, like, not having his father be around because his father, A.D. Adams, basically, like, is an absentee father. Like, he it gives, like, uh, his mom, Florence, gives birth to Bo, and then A.D. Adams basically moves across town, starts a whole, whole other family with another woman here, and, like, sort of see, like, the de- challenges Bo has. He's trying to, like, his mom's working three jobs to keep things stabilized. He's, like, getting into fights just to just because people are, get, like, uh, making fun of his stutter, like, all that crazy stuff with Bo. Talk about, like, what you found most interesting about his childhood. First of all, Mike, I just want to say, and I really mean this, I do so many of these interviews where people don't read the book or don't know what they're talking about or ask open-ended questions. I just want to say sincerely, I really appreciate that you read the book. It yeah. actually means a lot to me. I yeah. just want you to know that. Yeah. Um, and it says something about you, um, just so you took the time. Yeah. Um, it meant everything. It, it, it drove his life. It predetermined so much about him. Imagine you're Bo Jackson and you're being raised by a single mom. You're one of 11 kids. You're living in a house with three rooms. People are sleeping on floors. You, there's a uh, there's a uh, a wood burning furnace that you roll into sometimes at night, and you have burn marks on your arm. You don't have running water. You have to go to an outhouse on your property to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night with uh, fly paper on top, uh, tar paper on top to keep you know rain out. And your dad has no interest in you. Not only has no interest in you, like it's one thing to have be abandoned by your father, which is a muff of a mind fuck. He lives across town with his own family and shows no interest in you and pops up every now and then. And that's it. Like that drove him. That made him. That drove him as a father. It drove him as an athlete. It drove him as a human being. Also, his mother was hardcore disciplinarian. And, you know, there's one part where she like, tied him to the bed and beat the shit out of him. There are other parts where she would, it was basically in the South. I learned this from doing a book about Walter Payton years ago. During this time period, 50s, 60s, 70s, African-American families, rural South. The basic rule of thumb was for a parent to a kid who screwed up or made a mistake or disrespected them is 
pick what you want me to hit you with a switch, which is a stick, uh, the shower curtain rod, um, or, uh, uh, an extension cord pick. And that's what he grew up with. And that's intense. And, um, the other thing is his mom did not want him to play football. She was very adamant. So he didn't play football in junior high. He was a very late bloomer to football. And when he showed up those first few years, he played JV. He didn't just jump to varsity. He played JV. When people played with him are like, yeah, he was good, but he wasn't, he wasn't all world. And then all of a sudden he's on varsity and it just went. Poosh. Yeah, that's for sure. And speaking of like Bo's like talent as just pure athlete, it's like, I related to this sense of like when I was like in high school, like I was like a kid was like, just like really smart. Didn't really have to like apply, like studying as much that would still get the good grades. Sure. So it feels like how Bo was with the sports. I mean, throughout his career, he's like, I hate practice. Like he didn't really take time to learn the playbook as much, learn techniques or weight lift or anything like that. But like, he was just so good that he could basically walk on the field, like be hand the ball and run for 60 yards at a touchdown or like a crush a fastball for our homie here. So like, what, what do you think about like Bo's like, just natural ability because like it's crazy to think like how much better he could have been if he actually did have like the motivation to like properly train or like learn our practices and formation stuff like that he was so preposterously naturally gifted and he also was very savvy like he's not a he's a smart guy and he's a savvy guy i mean look at he basically there was an entire marketing campaign based around him and he barely said anything in the marketing campaign like he was savvy and he was smart and he had good people around him he's still savvy and smart um he was bursting with athleticism. There's no other way to say it. He was bursting with, you can say God's gifts if you're religious. You can say just like this physical hand-me-down tools. But I mean, he never lifted weights. He hated football practice. He liked baseball practice. He hated track practice. He truly was an athlete who could show up and just be freaking special. And you, that's a generational thing that really is. I think in the modern days, Maybe Mike Trout has that, you know, um, maybe Lamar Jackson to a certain degree, but he doesn't have that strength. There are certain guys who just can show up and they're so far above gifted. Um, and the interesting thing is, and it really is true. Like I wrote a book about Walter Payton and Walter Payton and Kobe Bryant's another guy. When you have a guy who is the most naturally gifted or one of the most naturally gifted athletes in the world and he works his ass off, you get... Kobe Bryant, you get Walter Payton. And it's in a way awe-inspiring to think about what Bo Jackson possibly could have been. But it's also possible this is as good as he could have been. And he was just so freakishly athletic that he hit the top ceiling anyway. Yeah, that's for sure here. And you mentioned Bo like at Auburn here because like it's interesting, like how like he and he's a kid, like I have no reason leaving the States, getting all these recruiting letters. He's like, I'm only staying in Alabama and like Freeland Abbott guides him there, and you see all the stuff he does, whether it's a football team, how they basically resign the offense for him a little bit, how he just shows up after football team and runs track and is, like, winning meets in the SEC championships and the baseball team. It's just, it's just nothing about all the stuff he was able to do at Auburn. It's ridiculous. It's I mean, we should have known from high school, right? High school, he's he stole 90 out of 91 yeah. bases yeah. in his lifetime. Like, that's ridiculous, right? That's, like, that's ridiculous. He... He set a national single season high school record with 20 home runs. Yeah. You know, like he was as good a defensive player on the line as he was a running back. He was their kicker. Like he was preposterous. He just was preposterous. And he shows up at Auburn. And at the time, there was a running back uh, who wound up going to Oklahoma named Marcus Dupree, who everyone considered the greatest athlete of all time, blah, blah, blah. So Bo Jackson coming to Auburn was under the radar. And he shows up. And he runs a 4-1-3-40 at 220 pounds. And it's like, 
how did y'all miss this guy? He's preposterous. He's ridiculous. He's different level. And um, everything he did at Auburn was just the things he did, jumping out of a pool in waist deep water, bending his knees, landing on the lip of the pool. You know, like, how do you do that? Home runs he hit off of people, walls he climbed, like just random. Someone said to me today, I don't, he really caught six flies in one hand. Like there was this moment where there are these flies around uh, on a windowsill. And he says to a baseball teammate, watch this. I'm going to catch all six of them. And he takes his hand and he goes, Shush. and he goes, he opens up his fingers one by one. And the flies just fly out of the yeah. hand. He just was different level. He absolutely was here. I also feel like felt like when I was reading through some of his time at football at Auburn, like especially he's dealing with all these injuries in college. And like he was dealing with some nasty injuries too. And he kept getting these labels out. Bo is soft. Everyone him to like say, oh, like uh, Herschel Walker was better than him. Let's bring on this random uh kid from a D2 school to be in the Heisman campaign because he's... D3, not, Joe Dudek, D3, yeah, Plymouth State. Yeah, yeah, Joe Dudek because he's not Bo. Like, Bo was going through a lot, and I think between that and the stutter, this sort of made it hard for him to sort of communicate, like, what he's actually dealing with. Yeah, and also, in his defense, like, okay, so you're Herschel Walker, and Herschel Walker was amazing. He really was amazing. It actually makes me sad what's going on now because people forget how preposterous of an athlete he was and how much he meant to Georgia, which he really did. But like, if you said to Herschel Walker at the time, you have a bruised sternum or you have a concussion and you're seeing five things when you should be seeing one, he would have played through it, right? And that would have been really stupid. Like that was really, we've learned from athletes how dumb it was that they were, the machismo of football uh, led a lot of people to multiple concussions, to debilitating injuries. Bo wasn't that guy. Bo would take himself out of game if he was hurt. And at the time in the 80s, we'd be like, oh, he's soft. He doesn't want it. And like, no, actually, he's savvy, he's smart, and he realizes he has a future. And like playing with internal bleeding, which he had in one game, is not wise. So these crusty old coaches who didn't really give a shit about their African-American athletes as long as they played would be slamming them. And Bo Jackson was savvy about it. And he did play hard, and he did play hurt, and he caught a lot of grief. And that whole, I mean, I remember it vividly. The Sports Illustrated cover, Bo Jackson's senior year. It said the thinking man's the thinking fans vote for the Heisman Trophy and had three pictures: Bo, Chuck Long, the Iowa quarterback, and Joe Dudek from Division Three Plymouth State. And SI put a check next to Joe Dudek's face. And um, Dudek was a great Division Three runner, a lovely guy. But if Bo Jackson had played Division Three football, he would have run for seven thousand yards, <laughs> probably more. It's a joke, and it was all. It really was. Look, let's praise the white scrappy guy because the black gifted athlete wouldn't know work if it hit him in the face. And looking back, it's just really disgusting. Yeah, it really was. I do want to touch about like now how Bo is going pro because like we do see like, I remember the closest debate we had in Montana with the Kyler Murray football or baseball thing is drafted by Oakland and chose to play football here. Sort of the opposite with Bo because Bo, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back then were terrible, the number one pick. And then we had this whole fiasco of Freeland Abbott basically agreeing to fly him on the Bucks plane to go for a physical, gets him completely uh, ineligible at Auburn for his senior year. And like, like for baseball, and I sort of really just like tick bow off the board and said, you know, like screw this. I'm gonna go play baseball right now. I don't want to play football. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I it's still up in the air whose fault that was. Like I actually think, gun to head, that Freeland Abbott probably called the NCAA or called the SEC and said, "Is this okay?" Because at the time, it was the same time as the NCAA basketball tournament, and supposedly the SEC offices were fairly empty. They sent all their officials to wherever the tournament was. And I could see some guy being like, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. And then them doing it because Bo always, Bo blamed two people. He blamed 
his agent, who he shouldn't have had anyway, because you weren't allowed to have an agent, but whatever. He blamed him, and he thought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were trying to ruin his eligibility, so he couldn't play any more baseball. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, that makes no sense. That would be the dumbest move in the history of organized sports, that a team would say, he, 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 if we ruin his baseball eligibility, he'll have to sign with us. Like, that's preposterous. So I think someone screwed up badly. And, you know, I think if none of that happens, Bo Jackson winds up a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. I think they offer him a lot more money in baseball. They have the number one pick. They have Steve Young at quarterback. Um, he gets to stay in the South. I think he winds up with maybe even never playing baseball. It does think it's interesting too, because like he talked, he talked in the book when he's going to have meetings with these with the players on the Bucks, and all of them are just saying, "Hey, like go away, don't come here. I mean, you want no part of this." So I thought that was also very funny. Oh, Steve Young, who I interviewed for a book I wrote about the USFL, is one of my favorite people on earth. He's just great. And he told this story I'd never heard where he's like, the owner of the Bucks was this old racist jackass named Hugh Culverhouse. And he he wanted to woo Bo to Tampa. So he said to Steve Young, their young star, let's go to dinner or lunch and we'll take Bo and talk to him. So they're at lunch. And this is after the Buccaneers had flown him in. They gave him, he, he came out to meet different people. And they're at this restaurant, fancy restaurant. And Culverhouse is like, I'm going to excuse myself and leave you too. And uh, Bo leans into Steve Young and says, just so you know, there's no fucking way I'm signing with this team. <laughs> and Steve Young's like, okay, my job is done here. I'm good. <laughs> and uh, they all knew he shouldn't. Like Steve Young, you know, wanted Bo Jackson as a teammate, but like he knew there's no, like you don't want to be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer in the 1980s. It's not like now. Yeah, that's for sure here. And obviously Bo ends up getting picked in the fourth round by the Royals, play baseball. He has this whole unique contract negotiation with them and where he's like, Guarantee himself a promotion in the major leagues September here. I did enjoy yeah. sort of the, the chapter on Memphis where basically Memphis is using him as a marketing tool and just has him you know, sign endless baseballs. And he's setting yeah. exciting poor clubhouse tennis after Bo's like, oh, you need this done. We need this done, this done. And Bo's trying to like play professional baseball. He's just getting bothered every 30 seconds or something new. Wait, my favorite thing is he got a, he taught one of the clubhouse kids how to sign his name. Yeah. And they're like, right now there are thousands of people in Memphis fist with like Bo Jackson autographed balls in plastic casing and it was actually signed by the clubhouse kid yeah he um he hated his time in Memphis he didn't dislike his teammates he didn't dislike the city of Memphis it's nice something he's a southern guy it's a southern city he was cool with it but the uh the GM and the owner just milked him George Lapidus just milked him and milked him and milked him and had him sign and it really I mean shit hit the fan when the owner of the team um, set up an interview for his son's friend on the high school newspaper. And the son's friend shows up. Bo already said no. He said, I don't have time for this. But Lapidus just ignores him. And his son's friend shows up from like, but whatever, his high school gazette. And Bo just is like, I hate to do this to you, kid, but I fucking told the owner I'm not doing this shit. And um, it just set him off. And understandably, you know, they just abused him. He was there to play baseball and get to the majors as quick as possible. Yeah, one thing I also noticed that the baseball I sort of enjoyed was like the swagger Bo Jackson had and how he's showing up to the Royals clubhouse. He's acting like, like he's the hot guy on campus. And like the thing oh, I was, he was. so hard, like when he shows up the first day, he's dropping autographed Heisman photos on everybody's chairs. Like, I've, And the guys are like, you've proven nothing to us here. Like, why are you drop leaving these things for us? It was some severely tone deaf nonsense. Like Willie Wilson and George Brett, guys who've been in the majors for a decade, don't want your autograph photo. Like it's not a cool move. And like, it is funny. He brought them all. He started putting them on the chairs of the players and how McCray, a veteran Royal was following him around, taking them and throwing them in the air like this. And um, 
all the players started throwing him on the ground. He was super cocky and self-assured. And when he, uh, I mean, you read the book, his first game as a major leaguer, he's September 2nd, he's facing Steve Carton, one of the, you know, great pitchers of all time, all time, all time. His future Hall of Famer comes in with 321 wins. If you watch the at-bat, it's an ode to like youth, youthful self-assurance versus an aged guy trying to hang on. I mean, Bo is like all but flexing at the plate. He takes his long stroll around the plate at one point. He hits a foul ball that's like this close to being a home run that flies over the pole. And he gets his first major league hit. First of all, it's a it's a ground ball to second base that he beats out. He runs from home to first in 3.6 seconds, which is the second fastest recorded time in major league history for a righty. The first was Mickey Mantle. And um, he's later admits he had no idea who Steve Carver was. <laughs> I never heard of the man. It's insane. It absolutely is insane here. And then it's interesting because, like, I, I, he plays a couple years at the Royals, like, starts getting himself in there. He's still getting a curveball, save his life, but he is just so athletic. He gets he's making a big difference here. And then he lets it be known, I think, to he back channels to the Raiders, like, hey, I'm willing to play football. I want to play for the Raiders here. And that did not go over well with his uh, teammates at the Royals. No, especially when it came to a reality. Um, they were pissed, and it was understandable. Um, number one, because, like, who the hell are you? Like, we've already given you special treatment. You were, like, you were called up before you should have been called up. Like, he wasn't major league ready when he came up. You were called up before you called up. You're making a lot more money than a lot of us who have been here a long time. They roll out the red carpet for you. They roll out the red carpet for your family. And now they're just going to let you play this violent sport, too? And we can't even, we have uh, clauses in our contract that say we can't, you know, windsurf or ride a motorcycle. And you're they're going to let you play in the NFL? That's insane. So a lot of the guys were really furious. And it got worse because... His first major league, his first NFL season was 87, and he really slumped in baseball toward the end of the 87 season. And um, they were just like, this is bullshit. Like, this is not right. And he's, I don't, I don't think it's true, but they're like, he's distracted. He's focused on football. There was not, the tensions were raw. Yeah, they absolutely were here. And just seeing Bo play football, especially with the Raiders, where Al Davis brings him in, basically, he's like, Oh, this is the shiny new toy. He's all the speed that I want. He's basically trying to force the coaches to use him instead of Marcus Allen. So, like, that stuff was interesting as well because obviously Bo's not practicing very well. But, like, when he's getting on the field, he's doing ridiculous things like the 90 yard touchdown run in Seattle and bowling over Brian Bosworth in the end zone. Oh, it's amazing. 91 yards. 91 yep. yards. Yeah. Got to be. I, he, um, he was ridiculous. He just was a different level. You know, he would, he just played baseball. He comes in, he barely knows a playbook. He's sleeping through meetings and, like, I mean, he showed up. One of the stories I love is he shows up. They ask him to run a 40 on grass in pads, and he runs a 4.17. Like, that's faster than Tyreek Hill's best 40. And he was probably 230 pounds at this point in pads. Like, he was a joke. And that Monday night football game is one of the definitive moments of my childhood, one of the definitive moments of Monday night football. It announced to the world that this guy was different. Um, it announced to the world that, like, there's an athlete at a new level who has entered the stratosphere. 20 million people watched that game. It was just enormous, enormous. And also like not for nothing, being serious about this, the Raider uniforms were so cool and still are. It was just his marriage. Like Bo Jackson, who looked like a, like a Greek statue. He looked like the David in silver and black. It just like, it just was something unique. It really was. Also unique was the whole Nike campaign for Bo Jackson, the Bo Knows deal. And they had 
the brilliant time we have to get run during the 89 all-star game right after he hits the home run and like he it comes up the fourth inning i think again after he hits the double and like it's a great commercial where Bo's playing every sport and then they have Bo Diddley at the end talking about how Bo doesn't know Diddley the how to play the guitar like that campaign is still probably one of the best campaigns that i've ever seen like for a professional oh. athlete tell me something because you're younger than me did you know Bo knows like if someone had said Bo knows would you have known it before this book I only knew it because I watched the Bo Jackson documentary a few years ago. And they talk about it there. 30 for 30. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, it was enormous. And it's funny. I mean, you read the book. Like, it's a 1989 All-Star game, as you said. The All-Star game at the time was a was an enormous national event. Like, it wasn't just a baseball event. At the time, it was a national event. It was must-see TV. The players played hard. They wanted to win. And uh, Tony LaRusso is the manager of the AL. And he, he has a meeting with Bo and Wade Boggs, a Red Sox third baseman. And Wade Boggs ordinarily would have led off this game. And LaRusso says, I think I'm going to lead off Bo. And you're going to bat second. Just for the spectacle of the moment. And Nike has this new ad campaign about to come out. Uh, the Bo Knows campaign. In this case, they got a musician, Bo Diddley, to say at the end of this ad, Bo, you don't know Diddley. And they lined up all these marquee athletes. Michael Jordan's in it. John McEnroe's in it. Joan Benoit Samuelson. Jim Everett. Kirk Gibson. And they all say, Bo, Wayne Gretzky, Bo Knows this. Bo Knows that. And they're going to air this ad. And all the Nike executives are in New York watching the game at Mickey Mantle's restaurant. And they're really nervous and uptight. How is this going to go? Second pitch of the game, Bo Jackson hits his home run to dead center field. In the booth is Vince Scully and special guest Ronald Reagan, who was recently done as president. The sky is clear blue. The ball bounces on the black batter's eye. And just like there's this scrum and this kid, a law student from BYU, grabs a ball and raises it in the air. And in New York, all the Nike people are hugging and screaming and clapping and cheering because they know they hit marketing gold. Yeah, they absolutely did here. And it looks like he was going to be on track for all sorts of craziest things here. And the thing that sort of like sets this all in motion that the downfall here is like the hip injury has a 90 in the 1991 playoffs with the Bengals here where the guy's tackling him and like his leg just plants in the ground. His hip really pops out. And then like, it's crazy to think about how far he come in modern medicine compared to 1991. Like this situation could have been so much different, so much better, like with the modern advanced technology, like may have actually salvaged some more of Bo Jackson than we did after the fact. Oh, definitely. I mean, he probably wouldn't have played football anymore, even nowadays with modern technology, but it's not 1 million percent out of the question. It's just unlikely. He probably wouldn't have played football. But there are guys now like Andy Murray in tennis had a hip replacement and kept playing. Um, and I talked to some modern surgeons who said, you know, he would have lost a tiny bit of speed, but not a ton. And when he showed up, to me, the saddest part for Bo Jackson is he shows up at spring training in 1992 with the White Sox. And uh, he's limping along and it's noticeable. And he actually lost a little because of deterioration in his hip. His one leg was actually shorter than his other. And he's kind of hobbling along. And there are moments when, like, um, like he hit a he hit a ground ball to short against Detroit in a spring training game, and Cecil Fielder was playing first, and he actually waved his arms like, "Don't make the throw here," because Bo was barely running, and he just didn't want to embarrass him. And there's nothing sadder. We've all seen videos of like Willie Mason, Willie Mays playing center field for the Mets, or like, not videos, but you know, old fat Babe Ruth wearing a. Uh, uh, I forgot what it was, but, you know, a Brooklyn Dodgers had at the end of his career, whatever. It's a sad. And this was really sad. And people thought this was how he was going to go out. And he actually had a hip surgery, replacement surgery, and came back and was the DH for the White Sox and played fairly well. 
Yeah, it's pretty nice to think about that. I also thought it was interesting that sort of the hipster seems like a sort of like recentering in terms of Bo's attitude towards his teammates. I mean, there's an incident early in the book when he's like choking out Kevin Seitzer in Toronto, like when he's yeah. like during BP because of the BP violation. But you see, basically, he's making bonds with his teammates now. It's sort of like reset, I think, Bo's mentality. It's like, oh, like I'm not going to be in this game forever. And like he's actually convinced himself more of training and doing stuff like that. I thought that was very interesting just how this changed perspective. I was talking to a friend of mine who played in the, this guy, Sean Green, who used to play for the Dodgers. And I've known Sean for many years. And he said to me recently something that stuck with me. He goes, we, meaning athletes, are all nicer after we retire because we just gain a perspective and we're not in the heat of it. And I think Bo got a lot nicer in that regard after the hip surgery because all of a sudden he did have to lift weights and all of a sudden he did have to swim in the pool and all of a sudden he did have to ride the bike and all of a sudden he knew what it was to have to make a team. He actually had to make the White Sox. It didn't all just come easily to him. He didn't just glide through it all. The, the endorsement deals weren't going to be the same. The attention wasn't going to be the same. So I think in many ways, number one, it humanized him. And number two, it's perhaps his greatest achievement. Coming back, playing on an artificial hip that would be the same exact model your grandma would have had in the 1990s, and being a legit major leaguer. Not a great major leaguer, but a legit major leaguer is otherworldly. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, like, you think about the whole perspective of Bo Jackson's career. He's sort of like a supernova where he comes in white hot. He's a star of attention for, like, four or five years. And then he basically flames out. And then he just quietly goes into the night and lives his own life. He has no interest in sort of being the public guy and, like, mugging on talk shows or showing up at radios or being around, like, all these other alums and teammates. He's, like, he's had to be a family at this point. He didn't even, first of all, when he was playing, the teams never had his phone number. Yeah. <laughs> they just, like, he wouldn't give it to him. He was very sort of to himself. He wasn't going out chasing tail. He wasn't going out getting wasted. He was married. He was devoted to his wife, Linda. He had three kids. He was a good dad. Now he's a grandpa. It's a, it's so it's so refreshing to me that you're not going to turn on a TV today and see Bo Jackson sitting across from Skip Bayless barking about how so-and-so athlete couldn't carry his jock. Like, you're not going to see that. He's not the guy who's going to say, Shohei Otani, what he's doing is no big deal. You should have seen what I did. Just pitching and hitting. Who cares? I'm playing. Like, he's not that guy. He's home in Illinois. He's a businessman. He shovels his driveway. He hunts. He drives his Ford truck. He raises his kids. He's a good husband. It's a great ending. It's it's the preferred ending. People still love Bo Jackson. Again, the book here is... The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, written by my guest today, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thank you for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I could be a follow on social media. I keep up with some of your exploits, and I'm sure updates on whatever the next book's going to be. Well, my wife would say don't follow me on Twitter. But <laughs> if you do want to follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman, uh, Jeff underscore Perlman on Instagram, and um, you can go to my website, jeffperlman.com. It's all good. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week number eight are here. Joining me today to break it all down, we got a special two for one deal here. We got the guys from the Sorry to Interrupt podcast, Sean Rowe, Tom Bikino here. Welcome, guys. How are you? Doing great, man. How are you? Thanks for having us on. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. I'm excited to be on. Excited to finally have a uh, Jets team above 500. I know I'm sure you are, too. 
Oh, I'm thrilled too here. We're gonna. I think we'll start out though with Sean's Giants because they have the better record right now. And let's start out here because obviously last week with the Jaguars here, they have this interesting game down there. They're behind for a little bit. They have the late lead. They almost give it up on the last play. It stopped one yard short. They stopped Christian Kirk at the one yard line here. So what did you guys take away from that uh, Giant-Jags game? Well, for me, it was another close Giants win. Another game that Daniel Jones led a game-winning drive. Um, it was probably the most disjointed that they were on a final drive, especially coming from the week uh, before when they pretty much took Lamar Jackson to school. Um, but, you know, a couple penalties here and there. But, uh, you know, Mike, I think the biggest difference, and Tom and I kind of talked about it on our pod, was, you know, these are games that the Giants perennially lost. They would. They, this was a game that I was just counting down the seconds until Jacksonville was able to score that touchdown. And that's kind of what the Giants season has been, honestly. Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting here. And obviously, on the day of recording here, the Giants do make a trade. They ship Kadarius Tony out of town. is in the Kansas City to get back a third-round pick for the compensatory round area and a sixth-round pick here. So, so, I guess I'll go to you. What do you think about this trade? What does it say about the Tony pick? Well, you know, for me, uh, you know, Kadarius Tony has been uh, a real enigma since his time with the Giants. Remember, they made the trade that should have been Micah Parsons, uh, that draft slot to, to trade with Chicago. Um, and, you know, uh, Kadarius Tony has all the tools in the tool shed, right? We've seen him be explosive in his very limited time playing, but it seems that he's also a little bit of a head case. And, you know, there were weird reports coming out today. He deleted a tweet saying that he wasn't actually hurt. Um, the Giants were just holding him out, trying to trade him. Uh, this was not the regime that drafted him. Uh, clearly, Joe Shane and Brian Dable are trying to create this culture that they want with players that they want. And at the end of the day, to get a compensatory third-round pick might likely turn into a fourth, plus a sixth for a guy that hasn't played at all. I thought it was a really good job by this Giants regime. And, and on top of that, I wonder what you guys think. I think it's going to allow them to pivot to make an acquisition for a receiver, maybe like a Jerry Judy uh, or somebody of that ilk, maybe a Claypool, because um, you know now they have even more draft capital to work with, and that freed up $1.2 million on the cap. I'll defer to you, uh, Tom. You can go first on that. Yeah, I, I agree with Sean. I mean, Tony, obviously he wasn't uh, let go for the lack of talent, but you know, I think culture is such an overused word, as Sean said it, but I do think it is fitting in this situation just because uh, off the field, Tony did have his question marks, and clearly he could not get on the field. And I, I just think the Giants are riding such a high right now that they wanted to get any negativity out of that locker room. And again, Sean said it was a previous regime that drafted him, so they don't really have any ties to that. And it frees them up to get somebody in there that is actually going to make an impact on this team. Which, bottom line, I don't care how talented he, uh, Tony is, he didn't make an impact. So if they can go out and get a Judy or a Claypool or a Moore or any of these guys that are actually going to make an impact, I think it works out great for the Giants. Yeah, I think in terms of the trade, I do think it's definitely not to keep an eye on the next couple of days, see if they do try and get a deal done before the deadline for a receiver, but... I also want to go back to the process of that trade also because this is the pick they made after they traded back with Gavlin's first ever trade back in his history of draft. They go back from 11 to 20 to take Tony. It's interesting going back in hindsight on this because at the time, they were, if they just sat at 11, they could have taken Micah Parsons. It would have had an incredible edge rusher here. So basically, I both laid out on Twitter earlier that in terms of this trade, what ends up being here, 
is that assuming that Parsons is the pick and he was pretty much the clean option here, they would you basically essentially trade the rights to Micah Parsons for Aaron Robinson because the Giants used that fourth rounder they got in the trades and trade up that year. Evan Neal, Daniel Bellinger, and the, t- the two picks of the Chiefs. So not a great trade in hindsight, but again, Dave Gelman's not here anymore. So those mistakes should not be being made at this point. Yeah, the guy. I'm sorry, Sean. The guy that the guy that made those mistakes was already fired for a million other mistakes. So you can't really can't really dump on the previous regime. You got to take the loss. And unlike the New York Yankees, the Giants cut their losses on the mistake that they made and they moved on. Yeah, I was going to say there's been a lot of shoulda, woulda, couldas with the Dave Gettleman era, and it's nice to just put that to bed here. Um, you know. Tom mentioned the word culture and culture is a word that we talk about on our pod. It's usually a word that's thrown out there with a lot of losing teams. Uh, you know, we're trying to establish a culture as we're one in five and, and rebuilding it, it, that culture word is a lot easier to use when you're six and one. Right. So obviously they have built up the equity. I'm talking about Shane Dable and everybody else new in that building to cut ties with a Kadarius Tony type and saying, listen, you know, we don't, we clearly don't like the fit here and we don't care how bad it looks because they walked into a situation where any move they make will look good compared to what Dave Gettleman did. So they move on. He's probably going to perform very well with Kansas city. I wish him nothing but the best. Congratulations. And now it's onward and upward. The giants have been six and one with no wide receiver talent whatsoever. And Kadarius Tony was not going to add to that. Yeah, it's very true here. And let's look at this week's game. As obviously they're heading out to Seattle, take on a four and three Seahawks. He nobody thought it would be this good at this point of the season. A former quarterback of both our teams, Geno Smith now doing very well out there. I think it's a tricky spot for the Giants this week because they have a good running back, Kenneth Walker. The Giants have some trouble stopping the run. Going out there, play is never easy. What do you guys think about this game here, the Giants' chances here? Tom, I'll let you lead off here. I mean, and on our podcast, I took the Giants. That was just to get a game up on Sean. I believe Sean took the Seahawks. I like the Seahawks play here with the minus three at home, going into one of the only true hostile environments left in the NFL. I I just think that the Giants were losing to, or excuse me, the Giants were beating teams that kind of made mistakes. You look at Jacksonville and a few other teams because they're just better coached than, than uh, these other teams. They're not more talented. The Giants are facing a team that is kind of a mirror image of them at home with the home field advantage, and this team is not going to make mistakes. So I think this is where the Giants' win streak comes to an end, to be honest. Yeah, I said, I made the point yesterday on the pod that this was pretty much, they are mirror images of each other. The the Seahawks seems to be the West Coast version of the Giants where there is nothing expected of them. You know, they're trying to turn the page, reestablish a little bit better vibes in that locker room. Russell Wilson being gone, Geno Smith coming in. They seem to like playing for him. Um, and, you know, I would not be shocked if the Giants won this game. Obviously, the, the spread kind of reflects that on a neutral field, this would be a pick em. But I don't know. It's like, I don't know how lucky the Giants can continue to get. Yes, they're putting themselves in positions to win. Daniel Jones has played turnover-free football. They've won several games. I didn't think they had a chance to win. But, you know, eventually some of that luck does run out. And Seattle's playing with some luck on their own, too. Yeah, for sure. Let's size the town here. Let's go to the Jets here because, obviously, they're 5-2. and two. Nobody thought they would be this good, obviously. They pick up a, a win over the Broncos, a sloppy win, where it's a very defensive game. Zach Wilson didn't make any major mistakes. He didn't look great, play great either. They got the one big touchdown, a bunch of field goals here. So, 
Tom, as the Jet guy here, what do you think about that? what we saw on Sunday for the Jets? Obviously, I was happy to get a win. Zach Wilson only completed 10 passes. And Sean, I believe you had a clip uh, that Zach Wilson said on our podcast where he was like, yeah, nobody should be happy with me. I only completed 10 passes. But he has not made the mistakes. Um, the Denver Broncos are going to get pressure. Their defense is not the reason why they suck. It is their offense. It is Russell Wilson. Um, they have a very good defense, and they have an extremely good pass rush. Zach Wilson was on his back the entire game. I, I felt really good about the win, but it was one of those wins where it feels like you lost more than you won, losing Vera Tucker and losing Brees Hall. Um, for me, uh, I know we're going to talk about it, but I think Vera Tucker is a much bigger loss than Brees Hall. Uh, incredible rookie year out of the kid. He probably was the front runner for rookie of the year, but we go out, we get a Robinson the next day, which I thought was huge. The Jets just turning the page very quickly, showing that we this this season is serious. We are taking it seriously, going out and getting uh, a former thousand yard rusher that's still in his prime. But the Vera Tucker loss for me was huge. He has been one of the best offensive linemen at three different positions this year, and I, I think that's truly going to cost the Jets. Um, I, I, it's been a storybook season. Uh, if you told me that the Jets were five and two, uh, I would take it. But now that we are five and two, and we are where we are, uh, I'm I'm heartbroken over the Vera Tucker loss. I really am. Yeah, sure. I want to talk about that for a minute here because obviously they have the two big injuries here. Brees Hall tears his ACL, meniscus. He's out for the year. Vasi Vera Tucker tears his his uh, triceps. He's also out for the year. Tom did mention the James Rosen trade does help a little bit because him and Michael Carter is. Not as upside as Hall and Michael Carter, but it's still pretty good. Elijah Barry Tucker, where he's able to play left tackle, right tackle, right guard, and all pro level, arguably the team MVP. That's a very brutal loss. I know they're probably out looking for another lineman here, but like they've had so many injuries on the offensive line. Losing him is a huge blow, in my opinion. Oh, no, it absolutely is. I mean, he's one of the most versatile and talented offensive linemen in the entire league. So anytime that you lose a player of that caliber, especially with a young quarterback and a good running game, you know, it's going to disrupt things. But I think it does a lot for the morale in that locker room to, to go out and say, listen, we're not going to, we're not going to rest on our laurels. We're going to go out and we're going to make an addition that we believe can help us. They only gave up a six rounder. Uh, so it was really no big deal there. James Robinson's had some success in the past. Um, I do want to bring this topic up to you guys though, because even though I am down here, uh, in the heart of Texas, I listen to and consume all my New York sports radio. And I was amazed at how many Jets fans call and are like, well, yeah, we're winning, but we're not winning the way like they should. Like, we don't know this about the quarterback. And I'm like, okay, I get that. But like, this is the first time, like, can't you just be happy? Can't you just be excited that you're winning? Even if you're winning ugly, because you always lost ugly. These games, like that game against Denver was a game you would have lost all the time last year. And you're winning that game now. Like, I don't think you need style points when you're coming from where the Jets have come from. And as a Giants fan, I'll kind of speak the same way. I don't care how the Giants win. I'm just enthused that they are winning. Yeah, I think in terms of that, I think this is front face has just been so traumatized over the last decade of like seeing disaster after disaster, especially with the two injured. I think this is sort of put a damper on it. It's sort of saying like, we're winning ugly with these guys in terms of now we don't have either of them. Like, is that going to make it, is the, is the roof going to fall off like the uh, building here? They're all going to cave in on us. That's, I can see the worry here in the situation. Sure. Yeah. No, it's I don't worry. For me, it's just it's and we're Sean and I are both Yankees fans, but I do I do root for the Mets. But it's Mets fan syndrome. It's like it, it, you're just going to be 
And on this way too, I, I fall into this as well, but I am enjoying the season. I'm trying not to fall into this, but it's just a woe is me and, and everything is going to suck for us no matter what. We can't have nice things when we should just be enjoying the ride. Because like I said a little bit earlier, if you told me that we were going to be five and two at this point in the season, I would be over the moon for it. And at the end of the day, whether or not we're winning ugly or whatever, we're winning games just like the Giants that any other season between, uh, I don't know, now and back to when the Jets went to back-to-back championship games, we would have lost every single year. And, and I think that goes to the talent that they've drafted over the last two to three years. And this coaching staff's doing a good job. I mean, there's a lot of things that lead me to be desired with Salah. Uh, a lot of sloppy penalties, but at the end of the day, they're five and two, and they're winning games that every other year they would lose. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah for sure. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, I say that's interesting for sure. I think it's also had it's going out at the same time as negativity. It's also thing because it's Elijah Moore thing going on here, where last week he gets pouts and demands a trade, and he's in. Like, they've been very handling. It's so this. stupid. It is really dumb, and and you can tell that the locker room is not having his back on this. We've seen a lot of like subtweeting from other players about things like this, and. It looks like right now things are calming down. They've been like the quarterbacks and talking to him, the coach staff and talking to him, and obviously with Corey Davis getting hurt, he's going to work back into the mix here. I do think like this has a potential to go nuclear. I do give credit to that room and the coaching staff for not letting this become like a big distraction when it could have been very easily. Well, winning Absolutely. helps too. Winning helps too. If you lose that game in Denver when he doesn't join the team because they told him to stay back east. Now you're looking at a situation that could be toxic. And the last thing you need for a young quarterback who's still trying to figure out the NFL ropes is to have a second-year wide receiver barking at him after a great road win why he's not getting the ball. I, I do agree with that. But at the same time, I, I think it was handled so well by the Jets regime because this guy, he's not you know a five-time all-pro wide receiver. I mean, he had a decent rookie year. You've basically done nothing, not to mention – like Zach Wilson said, he has not been playing that great. So it's not like even Garrett Wilson or, you know, any of our other wide receivers or tight ends are going off either. We won because of our defense and the running game. So for you to be complaining that you're not getting the ball, well, at this point in the season, we're 5-2. and two. So let's enjoy our wins and not speak out about selfish things like you getting touches. And let's enjoy these wins. And I, I think they handled it perfectly. Um, there was a report today that he's going to be working out of the slot a lot more, given the Corey Davis injury and uh, working him in. So I, I, I think it was the only way that it could have gone. Uh, they tried to acknowledge it as little as possible. They acknowledged it when they needed to, and they said the right thing. And this is going to go away. In the next few weeks, this is going to go away because I think Wilson learned, um, excuse me, more learned a lesson and. I mean, clearly it was proven to him that he's not going to get what he wants and that he just needs to keep quiet and keep it moving. We're 5-2. and two. At the end of the day, we're 5-2. and two. I'm going to keep saying it. We're 5-2 and two as the Jets. Well, you went through it with Nims, too, and, and he's been quiet and been a good soldier, too. So you hope the same thing happens. Yeah, absolutely. Here And they have this a massive game on Saturday, probably their biggest game, I think, in the regular season since the 2015 uh, finale in Buffalo here. Where New England's coming to town. New England is struggling at 3-4. and four. They may have a minor quarterback contract on their hands here. They they got beaten to the woodshed by the Bears on Monday night at home, which was a very bad look here. And this is a spot where, I mean, I'm sure the Cozy is harping on that the Vegas is favoring the Patriots this game despite all the craziness here. 
They're getting a ton of disrespect at 5-2, and two, and the Patriots have won 12 in a row because the Jets, Richard uh, Seymour called this the homecoming game last year when they went to Foxborough and got their asses beat. So I think this is a prime spot here for the Jets. They really want to show their fans it's different here. This is a must-win game, especially because you got Buffalo next week and you got to go to them in two weeks. You cannot lose this game. I'm in complete, complete agreement with you after watching the Patriots. I would have went 4-0 and with my picks last week if it wasn't for that debacle against the Bears. So, um, you know, neither Jones or um, or Zappi have impressed. Um, and I think the Jets' defense is more than capable of shutting them down. And you can score plenty of points. I think, you know, a 24-10 to 10 kind of win, 24-14 kind of win is very, very much there for you. Yeah, I don't. I, I the Patriots are in disarray right now. I know it is a minor quarterback controversy because neither of these guys have proven themselves, but I think it is a little bit more major in New England because not only was it an unforced error from Bill Belichick, which is extremely uncommon, an even more uncommon thing was it, it was an unforced off the field error by Bill Belichick. This wasn't an in game decision making thing. This was a talk to the press and then make stupid decisions actually in the game on top of that and compile it and they are just in an absolute debacle here and i don't know the patriots i mean they have a good defense but they if this keeps up they might go into a free fall here yeah they certainly will here and tom before we get to the picks here what do you think of the fact that the patriots are favored in this game i understand it i mean you just said it yourself regardless of the debacle last week bill belichick is one the last 12 against the jets um the Jets are five and two, but it is still the Patriots. I like that the the Patriots are favored. I want to fly below the radar, uh, and I and and I like getting the two and a half at home with this quarterback controversy. Um, this is going to be one of our picks. I can assure you that. Yeah, I think this is one. I think uh, Sean that like when Robert Salas is taking receipts, this is a big receipt he's showing to the locker room this week. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, listen, I think they're retiring to Berkshaw Ferguson's name and number into the ring of honor. So that's huge. Um, you know, the Patriots have obviously had the Jets number. I think the Patriots have beaten the Jets. I want to say every, was it, 12 every game the last four years in a row. Yeah. So like, this is not the same Patriots. I know Belichick's still great. I think the line is indicating that, you know, Patriots are just, Listen, it, it's the Belichick factor. I get it, but I think the Jets are the more talented team right now, even with some of the injuries that they face. Absolutely. Let's get to the picks, the reason why you guys are here this week. So Justin Diaz is here last week for a team challenges. He went 2-1 and one on the week. He took the Giants getting the points in Jacksonville. He won that game. He had the Cowboys laying 7. They covered easily against the Lions. He took the Ravens laying six and a half. They should have covered, and again, they nearly blow the late lead. So two and one for Justin. And it does it's, do not understand people. Don't pick the Ravens where they have favored that many points because they always find a way to give this, give, give it up or close, make it closer than it should be. Yeah, the NFL makes no sense this year. I've been saying it all year. I mean, you just have to watch the Bucks game from last week or the Packers game from last week. I mean. It's it just that this league does not make sense. The only thing that makes sense is that the Bills are good, the Chiefs are good, and the Cowboys have a good defense. That's all that makes sense to me. And the Eagles are really good, too. And the Eagles, of course. Yeah, I can't forget to mention the only undefeated team in the league. Yeah, so that's Justin's picks from last week. My picks, I'll give you the quick summary of how they were last week. They stink! 0-3 last week <laughs> for me, so... I was, Sean was with you on the Patriots laying the eight. They gave me a stink bomb against the Bears. 
I had the Colts plus two and a half. I thought they would play well. And then Matt Ryan loses his job after this game. Also, the Dolphins laying seven. They win by six. I don't get the cover. 0-3 oh, for me. Ouch. Yeah. That's tough, man. Tough. Yeah, it was tough. On the year, Team Challengers is 10-11. I'm 9-12. and 12. Not a good start by any means. We got to kind of kick this up here. So, we'll go to you guys first as the visiting uh, team here. So, where are you going for pick number one? Pick number one, I think we already mentioned. I am take we, excuse me, are taking the New York Jets plus two and a half at home against the Patriots with the quarterback in a major flux in New England. Yeah, Sean, any thoughts on that? No, we, we agree on this wholeheartedly. We did our picks last night on our podcast. I think, like I just said before, the Patriots are not the more talented team in this matchup, which is really weird to say in a Jets pass game. Uh, I expect the Jets to beat off the home crowd and get this win. Yeah, I like the logic as well. I like the pick. We're going with pick number two. Uh, pick number two, Sean and I decided to go. We both took this game this week on our own podcast. We are going with Cincinnati against Cleveland minus three. That offense really got going. I understand that Hurst is out for, excuse me, not Hurst. Um, what's his face? The Jamar, wide receiver. Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase is out for an extended period of time. I think Boyd's going to step in there and be a really good replacement. He went off last week. Higgins is still there. And I just don't think this Browns team can hang with this Cleveland offense. Sean? Yep, you know I feel the same way, my man. It's, uh, to me, this, this Bengals team is starting to click on all cylinders. Losing Chase is big, but they're the better team. Cleveland with Jacoby Brissett just has, they, they leave a lot to be desired. And yeah, I think the Bengals are trending in the right direction. Yeah, I think the one thing that worries you about this game is that, like, obviously the history factor here with the Browns being home underdogs, the Browns are 3-0 against Joe Burrow, and the fact that the Browns really need this game. If they don't get this one, they might be selling pieces off at the deadline. I expect them to. We've already seen Kareem Hunt's name in trade rumors. All right, let's pick number two. Where are you guys going with your last pick? Final pick, we are taking the Dallas Cowboys minus 9.5 against the Chicago Bears. I don't care what happened last week in New England. This Chicago Bears team sucks, and this defense is going to murder them. I think Dak Prescott is going to shake off the rust here, and that running game is going to be able to run all over the Chicago Bears. They're trading away everybody and anybody that's worth anything. Sean, what do you think? Same thing? You know it, my man. I mean, listen, Dallas's defense is playing at another level right now. They're prying on not great offenses, and Chicago is not a great offense. So... Right now, the Cowboys are, this is a game they have to win to keep pace in that NFC chase. Dak will take off some rust, and I know the number's large, but I would not be surprised to see something in like that 27-10 to 10 range, 27-12 range. Yeah, I stay away from this a number, but I do get the logic here, especially, you know, Chicago, big win, short week, back on the road again, made a little high on themselves, and they just come out and lay an egg. That game was such a cool. bad team. Yeah. Sure. Let's go to my picks now here. You guys are on the board. Pick number one, we'll make it a family play on the Jets. I feel very confident in this game as well because, I mean, again, the home crowd, they're going to be fired up after this game. There's a lot of motivational material with the Patriots, like Elton Board stuff. I think the Jets, again, flat out better in this thing. This defense not getting off respect here. The corner duo is elite. Not going to throw the football, be able to stop the run here. I think the James Robinson pick up a payoff in space. He's a good goal line option here. I think it's a big effort out of the Jets here. And two and a half is, I'm getting two and a half points. I win the, they're winning the game outright. Very comfortable. I'll take the Jets. We'll pick one. It's a great pick. 
Yeah, I like it a lot, obviously. <laughs> Pick number two. We're going to go to the other local game. I'm going to take the Seahawks laying the three against the Giants here. As they kind of laid out earlier, we talked about this game. I think it's a bad spot for the Giants. Again, going out to probably the toughest road environment they've been in this season. Seattle's overachieving. They have a good running game. It's been the weakness of the Giants here. I think this is going to finally be the week where Daniel Jones makes the big mistake and ends up costing the Giants here. I think them laying just three with the Seahawks at home, I think it's a solid number. I think that Geno's going to make enough plays in this game to pull out the victory here. I think it's a touchdown win for Seattle. So I'm going to take the Seahawks laying the three in the other local game. You could flip-flop this pick, honestly. I, I you held a gun to my head. I, I don't know what I would do, but obviously I'm taking I like Seattle in this spot, too. It's going to be tough. But uh, it's a really tough game to pick. It's really tough. Yeah, game. I like Seattle just, just at home. I like Seattle because they're home. Yeah, that's pick number two. Pick number three, home, another home underdog. I'm taking the Rams getting a point and a half at home against the 49ers here. And I know that 49ers are still very banged up. The Christian McCaffrey trade fire, has fired them up. I know that the owners that Kyle Shanahan has over Sean McVay during the regular season here. But I like the Rams here with two weeks to get ready for this game. I like them after getting disrespected at home here. That's been a big motivation factor this week here. I think it's another kind of circle the wagon spot for the Rams because they get swept here. It's going to be very hard for them to sort of make a run in this division. I think the 49ers are the favorite right now, even with Seattle's good record here. And I think they're going to have a couple weeks. I think Sean's been in the way of cooking up some things. And I feel like they're going to come out here and win this game outright. So give me the point and a half with the Rams at the last pick of the week. I like this pick because they desperately need this game. Yeah, I like this pick as well, especially coming off the bye week. They truly, truly need this game as a reigning Super Bowl champs. Um, and the Niners, I mean, Jimmy G has been making a lot of mistakes of recent. So I think he's going to make a few more with a little bit of pressure in his face, but maybe a pick or two. I like this pick. All right, so to reset the picks here, the sorry sports team has got with the Jets getting two and a half at home against the Patriots. The Bengals laying three on Monday Night Football in Cleveland against the Browns. And the Dallas Cowboys laying nine and a half at home against the Chicago Bears. My picks, we're making a family play on the Jets getting the, getting the two and a half points. The Seahawks laying three at home against the Giants, and the Rams getting a point and a half at home against the San Francisco 49ers. Those are our picks for week number eight. And guys, hard to believe the season's almost halfway over. Yeah, there's no official halfway point anymore, but it is pretty insane, isn't it? That we're already in week eight. This season just goes, this football season just goes by so, so fast. And I think what's made it so compelling is that lack of consistency and the fact that you have no idea what you're getting week to week. Yeah, I mean, next week, I guess, is week nine. I guess technically that would be the halfway point since an 18-week season after that. But I do think it's a lot of fun, especially for us where by this time of the year, the last, like, four or five years, we've all been talking about, like, oh, the mock draft, what quarterback are we taking? Now we're both – we're all looking at the playoff picture and what games are important for the Jets or the Giants in a given week. Yeah, fine. All right. Thanks for all the time, guys. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people check out the Sorry to Interrupt podcast and how can they follow us through some of the social media stuff? Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Sorry Sports. We always tweet out the podcast. We'll be tweeting out this one as well. And uh, any platform, sorry to interrupt. All right, awesome. Thanks for all the time, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on, Mike. Thank you, sir. The two-minute drill. All right, two-minute drill time. Might as well get you ready for this World Series. I'm sure neither New York team is thrilled about right now. The World Series begins tonight. Astros taking on the Phillies. And if you had Astros Phillies on your bingo card and on your bracket earlier this month, I hope you bet it because you would have made a lot of money with that matchup. Ironically, these teams just met to end the regular season. 
This was originally a series supposed to be set in April. The lockout pushed it back to the end of the year. The Houston Astros won two out of three. And games did not mean much to the Astros or the Phillies because the Phillies clinched their playoff spot with the win in the opener. Ironically, that's the last game the Astros lost. They won the last two games of that series. They swept the Mariners in three, swept the Yankees in four. They have not lost since that day in going to the World Series. The Astros have looked like a juggernaut so far. They swept both the Mariners and the Yankees. Hopefully, they've managed the World Series. Houston has a very deep lineup and even deeper pitching staff, which makes them by far the most challenging opponent the Phillies have gotten this October. The Phillies have gotten here. They won two against the Cardinals in the wild card round, swept them. They shocked the Braves in the division series. They would be in four games. They beat the Padres in five to get here. The Phillies did only win 87 games regular season. But you know what? They got in. They got hot. They got the job done. That duo of Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nolan's top of the rotation has been electric. Ranger Suarez is an effective number three. That slugging lineup they have, though, with all the guys who can't really play defense, but all they do is hit, whether it's Kyle Schwarber, Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos, Reese Hoskins, they've all come up big. Kyle Schwarber had a couple of big homers in the NLCS. Bryce Harper had a two-run homer in the eighth inning of Game 5. Still the first for the World Series since 2009. The key to this series right now, the whether or not the Astros can get to Wheeler and Nola, get them out of these games quickly. Because right now, if you, it is a normal schedule. We have two off travel off days. Wheeler and Nola theoretically start five of the seven games. If you can get them out of games quickly, get to that Philly bullpen, the Astros got a very short series because... That unit is still a weakness. They have a couple of guys they trust in there, not many overall. I think, look at the series, the overall depth of the Astros is a far tougher challenge than the Phillies can handle. My prediction is Houston in five. I think it's also interesting to see how the New York fans fall in this because the Met fans are not going to root for the Phillies. So they're going to go for Houston here. The Yankee fans are going to be very pissed off at the Astros because they've knocked them out. Does the New York Philly hatred you know, lead them to say, I can't stand this series? We will see. With that, I want to end the show for the week. I want to thank my guest, Jeff Perlman, for coming on to talk all about his Bo Jackson. But we'll hear more from Jeff later in the year. I'm going to give you the full version of the conversation. So I want to thank our guests for the pick segment, Tom McKeon and Sean Rowe from Sorry Sports. Sorry to interrupt podcast, so check that out as well. If you want to talk about this podcast, let's look at how the Elijah Moore situation has played out for the Jets and why I think they need to handle it correctly. I think they have thus far. Check out the blog over at justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. So I got the Sky Guys podcast. Episode 8 of our Andor coverage out in the Sky Guys podcast feed. It's going to be the main feed over the weekend, probably on Sunday. So you want that sooner, check out the Sky Guys, same podcast platform at the top of the show. You also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-I-P-S-3-3-1. And that's going to do it for this week on the podcast. Coming up next week, we're going to start you off with a special Halloween pop culture episode. We're going to have our pop culture team on to talk about all the fun stuff. We're going to talk about the peripheral, Midnight Club, Marvel's Halloween special, and more. Hope you have a better week than the Padres fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.